You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out to the, with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead." Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Risen Lord Jesus, we pray now that you would show us yourself in your word. Pray that we might, you might lift our gaze and our eyes towards you. This evening we pray, by the power of the Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. He is risen. That's good to say. Uh, there's, uh, if you're a fourth or sixth grader, you can head out with Caleb and Emily Ward, talk about this text that we just heard read together. That's, we, we, I think, man, we should say that more often. Christians used to say that not just on Easter Sunday. So I think when you guys see each other uh, crossing each other uh, just in the hall or on the street or on, on a phone call, that's a good thing to remind each other that he is risen. Well, this morning, France beat Croatia in the World Cup. Uh, for the re- Apparently some French fans in the house. Uh, that's odd, okay. Uh, but for the rest of their lives now, These young men who won the World Cup will get to say that they were the best national team in the world. That's pretty amazing. It was a a long and grueling tournament. It wasn't just a singular moment in time, but things have forever changed in the psyche of that team and forever changed perhaps even in the psyche of that nation. It's been 20 years since they'd won the World Cup. Things have changed forever. 
In one of my favorite movies, Apollo 13, Tom Hanks' character, Jim Lovell, he's sitting back in the backyard with his wife and they're looking up at the moon the night that Neil Armstrong has landed on the moon. And he looks over to his wife and he says, from now on, we live in a world where man has walked on the moon. And then he's exasperated. Neil Armstrong, he hates it. But from now on, uh, even though reality uh, didn't change much for him in the day-to-day of his life, the world had changed. Man has walked on the moon. These kinds of things happen all the time where everything is different. Not even even in a a good way. The United States will never return to the way it was before 9-11. The people who, the families and the uh, people who were in this bus crash this morning, their lives will never be the same. Happens seemingly daily to one of us or someone close to us when a loved one dies. Especially when death comes unexpectedly, like in a bus crash or in some other tragic event, perhaps in a young age. I've heard from many of you the difficulty of when the once a week meals or flowers stop coming in after a funeral. And then it's kind of difficult to see your friends' lives just return back to normal. But for you, normal will never be normal. There's a new reality that just has to become a new normal. Well, and finally arriving at the resurrection of Jesus, in the Gospel of John, we get, we get both scenarios where there's a new reality, the reality of a new and sad reality beginning to set in. There's confusion, there's mourning, there's sadness. But then that reality gets entirely turned on its head into a life, a reality, a universe that will never again be the same. So we'll work through the first half of this chapter together tonight in just two halves. What the resurrection did, and then what the resurrection does. So first of all, what the resurrection did, like in space and time, what did it do? First, our indication that something big has happened is the very first words of this chapter. We read, now on the first day of the week, all four gospel writers emphasize this, that it's the first day of the week rather than the third day after Jesus had died. We're not looking back any longer. We're looking forward into like a new calendar. Not just the first day of the week, but it's the first day of an entirely new reality. And so on this first day, we're introduced to Mary Magdalene. Not for the very first time introduced. We saw her briefly last week in chapter 19. She was bold to stand with Jesus as he hung dying on the cross at at Golgotha. But this is a woman who has been following Jesus for some time. We read about in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus had once cast out many demons from her. So she'd been following him in faith. She had come down uh, following him to Jerusalem. And not in contradiction with the other Gospel writers, John is likely just highlighting Mary. The other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that there are other women with her, and that certainly could be the case here as well. After all, in verse 2, she tells the disciples, we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary Magdalene and likely other women are here to perhaps contribute to like the hastily put together funeral ceremony, the burial that Nicodemus and Joseph had done. They had to get it done quickly before the sunset on Friday, which began the Sabbath. So now she and perhaps other women are here. They're here before dawn so that when the sun rises, the first time that they, have, they would be legally allowed to come and work on the body, prepare the tomb after the Sabbath, they're here. But what do they find? Mary finds that the stone has been rolled away. 
John doesn't tell us if she looks inside. So the implication seems to be that she didn't. She just sees that the stone has been rolled away and she assumes the worst. She assumes that there's probably been like a grave robbery or something. In a couple of years, the emperor Claudius, Claudius the emperor of of Rome, will make it uh, a capital offense that anyone who is found destroying a tomb or stealing a body, uh, they'd be executed. So apparently this is, this is a pretty common thing for tombs like this to be ransacked. So here she finds this and assumes the worst. Her, her world had been turned upside down like a day and a half ago when her Lord had died on the cross. And now it's just been shaken up in pain. This is like salt in the wound. Not only does it appear that everything that Jesus said maybe wasn't true, The kingdom that we thought he was bringing, perhaps she was thinking, maybe he didn't. But now someone's taken the body. And perhaps like those 75 pounds of ointment and perfumes that Nicodemus had brought, they're likely stolen. Maybe later this afternoon we'll hear about somebody finding Jesus' torn up body on the side of the road, maybe being eaten by dogs or birds. Like the thought of that is just too much. So she's thinking, we've got to go find the body now. So she takes off. She runs to the disciples. She runs, finds Peter. We find this is the first time we've seen him mentioned since his faithless and cowardly denial of Jesus. We'll see more of him in two weeks in chapter 21. But then she also finds this other disciple who's, again, his first identity and, in fact, his only identifier of himself is that he was loved by Jesus, likely the writer of this gospel, John. He's still calling himself that, even after Jesus' death, the one whom Jesus loved. And Mary tells them, frantically likely, likely even in tears, she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and John, they take off running. Likely indignant, likely infuriated that someone would desecrate Jesus' body. And much has been made throughout the centuries of John beating Peter to the tomb. Maybe this is like a slight dig at his like amazing athleticism. He was just like, yeah, I happened to beat him because I'm an awesome runner. But likely not. It's likely that just that John was a good deal younger than Peter. So he's just, he, was, he was in better shape than him. So he's just giving some historical fact that this is, this is what happened that morning, that I beat him. Anyway, he arrives first, and he pokes his head in, and he sees the linen cloths, which doesn't make sense, does it? Why would grave robbers have taken the time, the long time, to like unwrap a dead body of these linen cloths, and then not take them? Linen would have been expensive and valuable. But then Peter shows up, and he goes in, and he sees not only the linens, but this face cloth folded up neatly. Now, despite what you may have envisioned this cloth to be, perhaps even the Shroud of Turin, uh, that cloth that miraculously throughout the centuries still has the image of Jesus on it, even though we think it's probably found in the 1300s or so. Anyway, uh, this translated face cloth, literally, if we just literally translate what it says, is it's the cloth that was about his head. And this is likely just an act, uh, a strip of linen that was tied over the head and under the chin to keep a dead person's mouth from opening. Modern-day morticians do something very similar to this day, just like inside the mouth. Anyway, this strip, having now no use, was folded neatly, and it was placed beside the rest of the linens. It appears that the very first thing that Jesus did after the power and glory of God came surging through his body 
like a defibrillator, like sparked his heart to life again. And he opened his eyes and inhaled. The first thing he did was, appears perhaps like miraculously went through the linens, perhaps like he does go, we'll see him go through walls in his glorified state as well. But then he just kind of sits up and he creates a little order out of chaos and death. Just as is the habit of his life, perhaps, he looks around and he just tidies up the place. He folds the strip and he places it neatly by the other cloths. It's actually pretty astounding to think of this. Still in the dark before the dawn, the risen Lord Jesus just kind of folding things up nice and neatly. Anyway, when, when John follows Peter into the tomb and witnesses everything inside, we find out that he believes Likely, he believes that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Verse 9 tells us that for as yet, or up until that point, like up until this point, John and Peter and the rest of the disciples, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. But it appears, perhaps now in this moment, John understands. He believes. He believes and perhaps even considers something like Psalm 1610 where the psalmist wrote centuries before thinking through perhaps what would be ultimately true of Jesus, that for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption, David wrote. Perhaps even thinking towards something even greater than he could have even perhaps himself imagined, that God would not let the Holy One experience death forever, corruption forever. The resurrection must happen. Even if John maybe doesn't quite yet understand the fullness of what this means, what he does understand, perhaps, is that this is no longer just a tomb. It's, it's a fountainhead. It's the place from which, the source from which life and newness now explode out into a dead and dying world to bring life. And I think, before getting into the second half, I think this is what John wants us to understand in his next description of the tomb. When Mary finally returns, the, the empty tomb is the, a, a resurrection sign. It's like the greatest of all the signs that we've seen throughout John's gospel. A sign like the water to wine, the bread from heaven, the healings of the sick, the lame and the blind. All these were signs, even, even raising Lazarus from the dead. That Jesus is, in fact, the resurrection in life. It's not just that he is God and he has the power over life and death, but he will bring resurrection to, in, in life, to the branches that are attached to the life of himself, the vine of himself. And this sign itself is monumentally and eternally important. After all, what we, what we read tonight in our profession of faith, Paul says that if this sign didn't happen, then we Christians should be pitied. We should be like, just, the world should look at us and just think that what gullible dupes those Christians are to say that everything about their lives is banked on a lie, on that, that this man didn't actually live uh, for, or come again from the grave. Everything that we say that we put our hope in is just pointless and stupid if he didn't rise from the dead. But why would Paul say that? Why would Paul say everything that we live in and live in and believe in is pointless if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Why is the sign of his resurrection so important? Well, I haven't mentioned in a couple months what I think that John has been doing throughout his gospel on taking us through a, a symbolic tour of the temple, taking us deeper and deeper within the temple. We saw in John 2 that 
John wanted to introduce us to the structure of his book by saying that Jesus himself is actually the temple. And then as you come into the inner courts, you must first wash and be cleansed at the laver. So chapters 3 through 5, washing we saw was a massive, massive theme. And then you get to the table when you go through the temple courts and you see the display of the showbread as an offering to God. So in chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000 with bread and he teaches about manna from heaven. And then on through chapters 8 and 9 where Jesus is teaching on sight, on him being the light of the world was such an important theme. We're then taken further into the holy place to see the lampstand. Jesus' high priestly prayer that Clint preached from in chapter 17 is likely the, the priestly rite of insight, incense just outside the Holy of Holies. And then once a year, the high priest, the high priest dressed in linen, he would enter the Holy of Holies. This would happen throughout Israel's history annually. He would sprinkle blood on top of the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant where two angels sat the lid of the Ark of the Covenant that inside held the Ten Commandments and the law, the scriptures. God sees now every year, he would see his people. He would see their inability to follow and obey the law through the blood of the Lamb. So what does the resurrection do? He, or what did, it, what did it do here in chapter 20? The Holy of Holies, the place of God's terrifying and consuming presence is thrown wide open with an invitation to come in. Similar to how Matthew tells of the tearing of the curtain inside the temple, the stone, the veil is removed. Inside we see not two angels sitting on either side of the mercy seat like we see described of the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus 25, but now two angels sitting on either side of an empty bench where the high priest himself had been laid, bloody and dead. And even though John hadn't been able to understand the scriptures which were inside the Ark of the Covenant up until this point, now the lid was wide open. And he sees and he believes. Like, this is incredible stuff going on. A theme that's going to keep building of seeing and believing throughout the rest of this chapter, culminating in Thomas, which we'll see next week. But he sees and he believes. The resurrection brings people into the very presence of God. The place where they might meet with God, not consumed by his holiness, perhaps in fear like they had been all throughout Israel's history, but now transformed by his holiness as they come confidently through the blood of their high priest. Incredible stuff. So if this is what the resurrection did, that life and a new reality pours out from the tomb as we are now invited to meet with God himself, what now does the resurrection do? What the resurrection does? What effect does it still have in our life? So Mary arrives back at the tomb. She apparently missed Peter and John, who perhaps went a different way back to their houses. Maybe she had dejectedly and slowly walked back well behind their running. When she gets there, she just, she just sits down and she cries. She evidently, unlike Peter and John didn't go in. Perhaps continuing on in the same kind of grief she'd been experiencing for the past two days, but now it's just taken up to an even higher level of, kind of a different kind of grief and mourning. Perhaps she'd heard Jesus say that the world has always hated him, but this was just too much. 
the world coming after his death, and that someone would steal and uh, even further shame and desecrate his already tortured and dead body. The grief, perhaps, for her is just oppressive. The, the loss is felt and real. Perhaps the, the tears are hot. It's like the tears that have been just pouring for the past three days. Perhaps you know of this kind of sadness or grief. Perhaps you have experienced this kind of just like ongoing deep from within crying. Like how does the tear ducts continue to produce this amount of tears? Perhaps you've been there like stomach and whole body just hurting because of a very real and felt grief. Darkness. But then out of the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God comes out with light. And through the voice of an angel, the angels say, woman, why are you weeping? Now, it's, it's not likely that the, like, the angels are completely oblivious to what's going on. They didn't like stumble upon her and say, hey, hey, woman over there, like why, why do you happen to be crying this morning? This is likely a, more of a gentle reproof, like almost like a woman, why, like why are you still crying? By now you should not be crying any longer. You are not understanding what's going on here this morning. But thinking though that they really just don't understand, she answers them. She says, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And then what perhaps is my favorite narrative scene in the entirety of the Bible. We read this in beginning in 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. This is our first vision of Jesus after his death. And he asks Mary the same thing that the angels had asked. But then more pointedly, he asks her, whom are you seeking? Like, who are you looking for? Perhaps she doesn't have time to think and reflect on the nature of this very, very important question. But we do, so let's do that. It's probably the same kind of question that Jesus asked John and Andrew way back at the beginning of this gospel in chapter one as John and Andrew began following Jesus on the road and he like sees these two dudes following him and he turns around and he says, what are you seeking? What do you want from me? That's a big important question that Jesus asks of all of us. What do you want from me? Whom are you seeking? Perhaps he's asking Mary, what kind of Messiah were you expecting? What kind of Messiah are you still presently looking for? In about 10 seconds, Jesus is going to blow the doors off of the kind of Messiah that she thought she wanted and she thought she needed. But as incredible as her love and devotion was for him, after all, like she was one of the very, very few people who was standing with him in boldness and in courage as he hung on the cross on Friday. Yet still, her understanding and worship of him was still far too small. Far too small. But for the moment, much like will happen when the two men walk on the road to Emmaus with Jesus in Luke 24, or like we'll see in chapter 21 as the disciples are on the boat and they see Jesus on the beach, 
They don't recognize him. Mary doesn't recognize Jesus, which is a very strange thing, right? Let's, let's, just, let's just acknowledge that. That's a strange and weird thing. I'm not sure that we can be exactly sure what's going on here, other than perhaps what Paul would say later in 1 Corinthians 15 about our resurrected bodies being uh, completely different, transformed, could be true here for Jesus as well, like, like that almost like an oak tree is imperceptibly different than an acorn. Uh, our natural and physical acorn bodies will be completely and perhaps imperceptibly different. They are not what they will be. I don't know what's going on. Perhaps he uh, clouds her vision from him for, for some other reason that we don't know. But whatever the reason, Mary doesn't know who this supposed gardener is. Maybe, maybe he was the one that moved the body after this hastily put together funeral on Friday, Mary's thinking. But then Jesus just says her name. Like this is, if we didn't know this story, this would be a strange thing. But he just says her name. And that's all that is needed for her to see and believe. The Lord saying her name. She shows, she shows what Jesus said in John 10 is true. When he said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Like there are, there are just a ton of intimate moments in the Bible. There are a ton of intimate moments in the Gospel of John. We've seen them. But perhaps there is none more personal, none more intimate than this moment. Because the Savior knows his sheep by name. And when he calls them, they hear him. And when they hear him, they see him. And then when they see him, they believe him. And when they believe him, like their tears are now turned to gladness. This is incredible. Their sorrow turns to joy. Because the truth of this new resurrection world order, the new reality of the empty tomb, is that if you have believed in Jesus as your resurrected Lord, he has in the same kind of personal intimacy, called you by your name. You are an individually dead person, not alive to God, not wanting to know him. And yet then the Savior very intimately and personally calls you by name. He's not some aloof and indifferent God out there just setting the universe to go and then just watching it go from heaven. But he knows you. He sees your current places of pain and difficulty and calls you by name. Like of all of the millions of Christians even that have lived through the years, he knows each of them by name. Amazing. And not just knows them by name, but then knows the number of hairs on their head. He knows you better than you know you. And being the linen-wrapped high priest who is also a man of sorrows, a man of suffering and loss, he understands and can empathize with our suffering and loss. Don't forget that in chapter 11, Jesus wept with a different Mary and her sister Martha, grieving with them at the loss of their brother. The creator and God of the universe cried. Like, let that sink in. This is an incredible reality. The creator and God of the universe empathized enough with these women to cry with them, to weep with them and mourn. 
But here's the thing about not just focusing on the sign, but then seeing beyond the sign of what the resurrection is and does, is that his resurrection undoubtedly means that his work is finished, that's true. His his work of bearing the weight of your sin was finished on the cross. We saw that last week. But if, if Jesus stays dead, then we stay dead. If he doesn't have the power over death, then no one does, and we are without hope. But if he is alive, then we are alive as well. Both now spiritually, and like we've said of the angel's question to Mary in in Luke's gospel, the same can be said of us. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? Like seriously, we can say to sin and temptation and the evil one throughout our lives and the day-to-day realities of our lives, we can say, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? I am alive in Christ. We can say to crushing sadness and depression without hope, we can say, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? I'm alive. Oh, sin, where is your victory? Oh, oh, cancer, where is your sting? Oh, anxiety, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He is alive and he gives us his life. Just as Clint read, In Romans 6, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But not just in a spiritual sense, but in a very real physical sense as well. We already saw Jesus say in John 5 that all humans will one day be raised to new life in a very literal resurrection. So it's in that sense that we said that cemeteries that are filled with Christians aren't, isn't like a tomb, but it's more like a garden. uh, like a holding place for people to spring forth in new life forever changed perhaps at the speaking of our names by the Lord Jesus again will forever and eternally change us but more on that over the next two weeks but here's a question for us though as we consider what does the resurrection do if Jesus has been raised from the dead and if I'm a Christian And if I am raised from the dead with him, then why do I still struggle like I do with with the sin that I am supposedly dead to? If I'm a Christian following the risen Christ, then why am I often, like Mary, so full of despair, sadness? Well, perhaps the first answer can just be a blunt one. Perhaps you are or have been looking for the wrong kind of Messiah. You thought believing him would quickly remove all your problems. You thought perhaps life in his kingdom would be more of a physical one. Perhaps not like these first century Jews um, who thought the Messiah would come and lead a new and renewed kingdom over Israel's physical enemies. But perhaps you thought that Putting yourself under this king would give you better social standing or an easier life. Maybe a spouse or children. Maybe following Jesus, you thought, would just merely bring you freedom from this problem or that addiction. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come merely to fix your problems, merely to free you from addictions. Certainly not to give you stuff. Following Jesus is not necessarily, from what the world 
observes an easier life. Following Jesus means carrying a cross like his to your death, the death of yourself. But Jesus did come to give you himself. To, as your king, the object of your greatest worship, your highest affection. Not like your third or fourth or tenth or hundredth affection that like requires 2% of your attention throughout your week, but as the object of your greatest and highest worship and affection. Then he gives you his joy and his peace. So when we get these things reversed, that we get ourselves into trouble, that we start looking for joy and peace, and if we can have maybe just a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top, then that'd be great. But he comes to be your daily and ongoing treasure. The who and the what that you long for in the day, in the evening, in the night. Your highest treasure. So perhaps you've been looking at Jesus all along, but you haven't seen him. You thought you have, but you haven't seen him in a real, in, in real and growing love for who he is and what he's done. But perhaps more just like some random gardener. A guy with a role and purpose for sure. Perhaps a problem solver, somebody who can get my jobs done more easily than I can. But not my king. Not my treasure in my place of highest affection and love. So this is a question for us as we think through these questions of why am I still struggling? Why am I still experiencing these kinds of emotions that I do? One question perhaps can be asked in response. Whom are you looking for? But another reason for why we still experience pain, why we still experience sin and struggle, sadness, is that he hasn't taken these things away yet. It appears that efficiency isn't one of Jesus' highest priorities. Can we just say that? But that perhaps a higher priority than efficiency is that the shaping of the character of his people is. So Jesus says to Mary in verse 17, in what might initially read as calloused and cold, he says, do not cling to me. Can you imagine? Like, she is beside herself. She has seen the risen Lord. And he says, like, stop touching me. (laughs) Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now we know that he isn't just saying, don't touch me, because at the end of the chapter, he's going to tell Thomas to do just that, right? But he's saying that everything that he told his disciples in chapters 14 through 17, which Mary was very likely present for, all of that is about to happen. And what is it that he told them? He told them that he's going to go away and prepare a place for them. That when he goes away, then he'll send the helper, the strengthener, the comforter, That he's going to, the strengthener will come to guide you in all truth. That he will inhabit you now as the new temple, the, the new holy of holies now here on earth. And that when the spirit does this, that you as my people might be like wrapped up in the whirlwind of the life of the triune God. That you within the life of the church might experience the same kind of relational intimacy that Christ experiences with the father and the spirit. And yet, Mary is even going to have to wait for that, isn't she? Wait for the coming of the Spirit. It's not coming yet. It's not like efficiency isn't the the MO here. She's going to have to wait even a few more days for that. 
Even though Jesus seems to be saying you're enjoying and rejoicing this morning and will receive the Spirit one day and a few days in incredible joy, even after that, there will still be suffering in this world. Because remember what he also said in chapter 16. The world will hate you because it first hated me. I'm not coming just to give you an easy life. You will still experience loss and sadness. You'll still experience weakness and sickness and death. But not always. Not always. Paul will go after this theme in 2 Corinthians 5 when he's talking about our first body and its unglorified state, the state that can get weak and sick and old and sad. And he describes this body as like a a mobile tent, a thing that was never intended to be our permanent home and hope. This body was never intended to be the place that we put our ultimate hope in. He says in chapter 5, verse 4, he says, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, We experience burden. This tent, this mortal body experiences cancer and autoimmune diseases and allergies and depression, real burdens. But Paul goes on to say, not that we would be unclothed. He says, God isn't going to just take this body away from us, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That God is going to do something amazing of a a putting on on top of this body to completely transform and glorify it. Just as Jesus' body was transformed and glorified in his resurrection forever as well. Our taking on of immortality and glory would be the same as his. So even though this life is very hard, even though we mourn, we do not mourn like those who do not have hope. Because the irony of this scene is that Jesus has come as a gardener. Mary was confused and thought he was a gardener, but he actually is. Because in the the first garden, where the first Adam lost his bride at the tree, in the second garden, the second Adam won his bride on the tree. In the first garden, the first Adam was cursed with thorns in his work. But in the second garden, the second Adam took that curse of thorns and he gladly wore it on his head. Reversing the curse, taking our sin upon himself. He has come to win you your life, to win you as his bride, to make you a more true version of yourself than you were on your own. And yet, like we said last week, our experience now is kind of like his experience in the tomb of being hung between two worlds, two universes, two realities, a life in the overlap of the kingdom of heaven's invasion of the kingdom of earth, where there's still death. But this garden in John 20 isn't the last garden, is it, in the Bible? There's another garden coming. In his last book, John will write in Revelation of another coming garden from which John, this same John that writes of this garden, he'll see a vision of another garden from which he hears a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
just as happened with Mary, but now forever. And death shall be no more. Neither shall be, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away forever. And this is actually what Paul's point was about this tent and mortal life stuff in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, so we are always of good courage. He's talking about the life that we experience of this body that can get sick and be sad and be depressed. It is burdensome and it experiences all kind of pain and tragedy. And yet we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. Mary and his disciples will not be able to see him anymore. They will now have to walk by faith in his promises, by faith in what he has done, no longer by just looking at him. But what about us who have never seen him? I mean, we've seen this gospel account to be full of credible eyewitness testimony. This is not some tall tale fable that Jesus, uh, some later, centuries later, followers of Jesus, like later uh, made up this idea that he was actually God. No, this is actually believable and credible that he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. But what about when we doubt? What about when we have trouble believing? We'll come back next week. We've seen how Jesus' resurrection this week speaks to our sadness and our mourning, turning the whole thing upside down. Next week, we'll see how Jesus' resurrection speaks to our faith, speaks to our doubt. But in the meantime, he is risen, and this changes everything. Like Jim Lovell in his backyard, Mary can now, along with the rest of humanity— Say, from now on, we live in a world where man has risen from the dead. And this changes everything. It proves that God is real. Like, dead people don't come to life without there being some supernatural power in the universe. It proves that he is God. Jesus is God because it validates everything that he said about himself being God throughout his teaching ministry. It means that this life is not our end. It means that we will experience life as he does if we are trusting in him and in his cross. And it means that this life is not all that we have to hope in. In a few minutes after coming to the table and taking the bread and the cup and reflecting on Jesus' death on our behalf, we're going to finish the service by celebrating and reflecting on the reality of his resurrection on our behalf. We're going to sing an old song for the first time together, which I'm real excited about. This is, listen to the words that we're about to sing. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Whatever might come tomorrow, I can face it. Because he lives. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. Because I know that he is God himself. And life is worth the living just because he lives. So Christian, struggle, mourn, grieve, and cry. But know that the risen Christ, he sees you, he knows you, he cares for you, and he has given you his life. 
And life is worth the living just because he lives. Let's thank him for that truth. Lord Jesus, we are thankful. Thankfulness is almost even uh, an emotion that is far too low to express what we feel for your life on our behalf, for your death on our behalf, for your resurrection on our behalf, that we might be united to you in your death, that we might be united to you in your life. No longer uh, fearing condemnation, no longer fearing the anger of God, but by treasuring you above all else, by worshiping you as our king, by loving you as the new gardener, the one who has won us to yourself. Lord Jesus, we now have confidence as you usher us in to the very holy of holies, the presence and place of God. So Father, we pray that you would help us this week by the power of the Spirit. Spirit, we pray that you would comfort us, encourage us, strengthen us, remind us that Jesus is alive and this changes everything. Help us to know the power of the resurrection. Help us to walk in it this week in newness of life. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.